Good morning on this Sunday morning before vacation Bible school. Tonight will be a little bit different at 6 o'clock. We'll meet just real quick. I meant to tell you this earlier and and have um, some prayer for vacation Bible school and any pressing prayer needs we have. Just a little bit of praise together and then we will break to continue to labor about the Lord's business that's going to unfold over the next week. And we are excited and prayerful about what the Lord has in store for us. But this morning... Water and Fire Part 3, Fire Part B, if you will. In Matthew chapter 3 and verses 4 through 12, we have seen John the Baptist come preaching. And when John comes, he comes like a whirlwind of fire, a coat of camel's hair and a diet of locust and wild honey with a very particular and a very peculiar message. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Matthew writes and says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Here is John, the one foretold, not just by Isaiah and not only by the angel, but also by Malachi when he wrote the word of the Lord in chapter 3 and said, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And so John comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah for As we have seen, he is the Elijah that was to come. And Elijah still comes. John's charge to the people is daunting. To make straight paths. To prepare a way that is suitable for the coming of God himself. To prepare a people for the immediacy of the Lord's coming. But while John's charge is daunting. His message is impossible. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. It says that John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John's charge may have been daunting, but John's message is impossible for men. Repentance and fruit bearing are outside of the scope of what men are able of their own accord to do. For repentance, according to scripture, is granted by God and by God alone. And the fruit that John speaks of is the result, the sole result, of abiding in Christ. And this 
group, this generation, this offspring of vipers want nothing to do with the kingdom and the king that John is proclaiming. They want nothing to do with his repentance. They want nothing to do with bearing his fruit. For in Luke chapter 7, verse 28 through 30, Jesus gives his estimation of them. And he says, I tell you that among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And when all of the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Man, could you imagine if your legacy was to have that statement written about you in one of the Gospels? That as a group, as a whole, these Pharisees and these lawyers had rejected when the tax collectors, when the the publicans would justify God in what was preached according to John. They would reject the purpose of God for themselves. And reject the baptism that was the sign of it. And yet in the midst of this generation and offspring of vipers there is hope. You don't have to show up for the right reason. To walk away a new creation. And while ordinances like water baptism do not affect change. When they're legitimate they are a sign of it. For men labor, but it is God that brings effect. Paul spoke to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, when he said, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so here is John preaching. Here is John baptizing by water for repentance. But he who is coming, He who is coming after him will not baptize according to water. Verse 11, John says it like this in the the ESV, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Now i got to tell you, that is a perfectly fine translation. It, It gets across the point. It brings all of the information that you see in the original Greek to the table. It gets it done. However, somewhere in the translation from the Greek to a fairly reading, fairly easy reading English, we lose some of the gravitas, if you will, some of the weight of the original. We read it like this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. If you want something a little bit more directly and a little bit more weighty out of the Greek, what John said actually was something more like this. I baptize you with water for repentance. He but after me comes mightier than I. I baptize you with water for repentance. He but after me comes. He will not baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire because the one who is coming is mighty. He is able. 
He baptizes with the Holy Spirit, the regenerative agent of salvation, cleansing his people from sin and putting a new heart in men. Not just a symbol of repentance, but the actual thing. A spirit that has been both with and in the people of God from the beginning. A spirit that defines them when they are plunged into it. It's always been here from of old. And yet... Something new is coming in the Spirit. An empowerment that used to be unique to particular individuals that is now being given to the entirety of the saints of God. An empowerment to go forth and make disciples that is no longer the purview only of prophets and judges and kings, but instead now of all of His saints. For Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power. You will receive power, Mount Zion, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the very end of the earth. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance but he who after me comes is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, with regeneration and power to see the effectiveness of the kingdom, and he will baptize you with fire. And so today, baptism by fire. Matthew chapter 3 Verse 11 and 12. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so here in the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, we see three baptisms. A baptism of water, a baptism of spirit, and a baptism of fire. Three that are separate but closely related realities. Water baptism came through John. And it was emblematic, a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. And during John's ministry, that symbolism was of repentance and cleansing, preparation, a straight path for the kingdom and the king that was to come. But the Holy Spirit and fire, those baptisms come not through John, but through Christ. And though we may be tempted to jump to conclusions, the reality is is that the baptism of spirit and the baptism of fire are not the same thing. The spirit is spirit. That's what we saw last week. He's the regenerator, the bringer of salvation. And fire is fire. Now I would have you note that because the three... The water and what it symbolizes, the spirit and the fire, because these three are related so closely to the same topic, 
and oftentimes even look very similar to each other, we might be tempted to confuse them, especially when speaking of baptism in spirit and fire, since they are both spiritual realities and they both come from Christ. You know, it's pretty easy to separate the water of John's baptism that is emblematic. That's a fancy type of symbol that looks like the thing that it's symbolizing. It's easy to separate in our own mind the emblematic symbolism that John was participating in with the spiritual reality of spirit and fire that only Christ can bring. Those are easy. One is of men and finite, and it speaks to something that's bigger. The other is the thing that's bigger comes only from God himself. These two are easier for us to confuse. Especially when spirit and fire share certain commonalities in speaking to the events of salvation. As a matter of fact, when you look at the events of Acts chapter 2, where the promise of empowerment in the spirit is fulfilled, they even look the same. In Acts chapter 2, in verses 1 through 4, I just want to touch on it real quick. I'm not going to dwell there this morning. But we see the empowerment, the new work of the Spirit upon the saints of God that Jesus had promised coming to fruition. It says the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire. Not fire. But it sure looked like it, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When you have two baptisms that are coming from the same source and it's all supernatural and they're all associated with the same salvation and they look so similar, it is easy for the mind of a man to equate the two as going together. But I would encourage you this morning not to confuse them. And what I mean by that is this. Do not think about them as though the saints are being baptized by Christ with both. For the saints are not being baptized by Christ into both the Spirit and in fire. Instead, what John is saying is much more. Now if you want to consider... The baptism by the Spirit, if you want to consider the baptism by fire, the first thing you have to do is recognize who Christ is speaking to. And so if we look at at chapter 3, verse 11, the very first statement, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so there is one coming, but he who comes after me, mightier than I. This one, of course, is Christ. It is the Lord coming swiftly into his temple. When he comes, he will baptize both with spirit and fire, and he will baptize a very particular group of people, and that group of people is, according to the text, you. Now, the problem with pronouns, 
is that they can be applied to a large audience, but in truth are only applied to a specific audience. And so if I say the word he, that could apply to any man in here. But if I say I asked Jim to turn down the thermostat and he was kind enough to do it for me, not that I need you to, not this morning, then the he ceases being kind of this general statement that could be anybody and it becomes specifically Jim. The problem is, is when we pull scripture out of its context, we have a tendency to start applying pronouns kind of willy-nilly and as we see fit. And so we read this, and John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And if we're not careful, we'll start thinking, you in Matthew chapter 3 means me. And maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. And the only way to find out is to discover who the you is in the text. And so the fancy word here is to find the antecedent of the pronoun. And the antecedent is that which comes before that defines what the pronoun is. And so when I said, I asked Jim to turn down the thermostat for me, and Jim is identified, he becomes the antecedent. And when I say, and he did, that means and Jim did, not and Rocky did. So who is you? You have to look back up the page until the pronoun is no longer used, but instead is identified, and it happens in verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, pronoun who? Pharisees and Sadducees that showed up at the baptism, he said to them, you brood of Vipers. At that point, after verse 7, all the way down through the end of the narrative in verse 12, every time the plural pronoun is used, whether it is them, they, you, or yourselves, it is always referring to the group of Pharisees and Sadducees that are both the offspring and a generation of vipers. That's who he says this to. So before you start thinking to yourself, John said that Jesus would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I'm part of that you. I'm baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You need to woe your horses up just for a minute unless you're willing to identify yourself as Pharisee, Sadducee, and a brood of vipers. Because that's who he's talking to. When he says he will baptize you, the one that comes after me that's mightier than I, with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he's talking to a brood of vipers. Which is why he includes both baptism by the Spirit and baptism by fire. I would have you note that what John is preaching is quoted over and over and over in the New Testament. But when it is quoted specifically about believers, the baptism that is mentioned is only the baptism of the Spirit. Looks like this. For instance, of the apostles, in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. And while staying with them, that being Christ, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now in Acts, the you has changed. The you is no longer a group of vipers. The you is the born-again believers that have received the Spirit in John chapter 20 and are awaiting the coming of the kingdom of Christ. And he looks at them and says, Look, buddy, John baptized you with water, but y'all need to hang out for a little while because my baptism is not complete, and I come to baptize you with what? Not with fire, but with the Holy Spirit. The same thing is said when the Gentiles come to faith through Peter's preaching. A little bit later in Acts chapter 11 and verse 15, Peter says that I began to speak and the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Just as on us at the beginning. So in divided tongues like fire. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Why? Does John say to Pharisees and Sadducees that are a group of vipers, he comes to baptize you with fire, when what he says about the saints is he comes to baptize you with the Holy Spirit? And the answer is because the baptism of fire is a baptism of judgment upon those who do not believe. It's not some particular type of baptism of the Spirit. It is something completely different. It's a baptism of judgment. And make no mistake, Christ came to bring fire. These aren't my words. They're His. In Luke chapter 12, verse 49, He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now that's a statement. Jesus speaking to His disciples, Boys, I came to cast fire on the earth. But, not only does he say that, that, it would be one thing if he said that, right? Like, this is on the checklist to do. We've got a lot of stuff I've got to do, you know, I've got to be <laughs> incarnation, condescension, you know, born in, 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 a, in a stable, laid in a manger. You know, I've I got to entertain shepherds and wise men at my birth and live a sinless life and instruct men in the temple and, and, and walk on the water and bring the dead to life and live a sinless life and die the propitiation for sin. And, and there's just a lot of things to do. And here's one of those things that I've come to bring fire on the earth. But that is not how Christ says it. He says it like this. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it was already kindled. Now that last part tells you the heart and the desire of Christ. Not only did I come to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. He says, I wish it was already burning. You go, man, what does that have to do with blessed are the meek? Well, Lord willing, we'll get there. Make no doubt about it, Christ came to cast fire upon the earth. And he's speaking to a you 
that is Pharisees and Sadducees, a brood of vipers that have rejected the purpose of the Lord for them, and therefore, by all estimation, have it coming to them. And so the question isn't really, well, why does he add fire to the baptism which John speaks about? Their question is, is why does he tell them that he's going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit? That's the question. I mean, if you've got Pharisees and Sadducees, a brood of vipers, literally the offspring and a generation of snakes, and these people are going to reject God's purpose for them, then why doesn't John just say this? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What you ought to be doing is the impossible. You ought to be repenting. You ought to be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance that is abiding in the Christ who you are and will reject. Don't think that because you're the children of Abraham, that's going to get you anywhere. Don't think because your great-granddad was a pastor and your uncle is a deacon and you come to church every single time the doors are open, don't think that's going to get you anywhere. God will raise up children of Abraham out of these rocks if he wants to. I baptize you with water for repentance and you reject that. But he who after me comes is mightier than I and he's going to baptize you with fire. Now that's a hellfire and brimstone sermon. But it's not what John preaches. John says he's going to... John preaches a scripturally balanced gospel. John says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Why does he mention both? He mentions both because even amongst this brood of vipers... The threshing floor is a mixed bag. The wheat and the chaff grow together. In this world, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness exist intermingled with each other. We would like to think that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness exist side by side. See, and that would be offensive enough, but at least there would be a clear line of demarcation and all the saints are over here. No offense. And, and, and all the lost and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are over here. But that's not the way it works. Jesus says that they are intermingled, that they are interspersed with each other. He uses a parable in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 24 through 30 and he says it like this. Then he put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master... Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And so the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Whether you're talking about wheat and chaff or wheat and weeds, 
The fact of the matter is, is that in the midst of this world, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness are intermingled with each other. And yet, the wheat and the chaff have very specific and very different ends. For one is to be taken into his barns and the other is to be burned. And if you're going to have two things that are mingled together that have very specific ends, this requires separation. And friends, separation is a difficult, difficult thing. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John says, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, if you know anything about winnowing, we probably wouldn't call it winnowing today. We, we, we would call it sifting probably or separating, but... The fact of the matter is that sifting really doesn't grab the idea, you know, you sift flour to make sure that there's not any, you know, little stones that might have chipped off the mill or more likely people used to sift flour to get the bugs out of it, right? You sift flour to make sure there's nothing in it that you don't want. It's all nice and even and everything goes through the sieve. But that's not really the way that, that winnowing grain works. Let me tell you, you don't want any chaff. And it's not just because it's unpleasant. You get any of that stuff stuck in your throat, you will think it's trying to kill you. And the way it works is this. The chaff is the husk on the outside, and it's all prickly and barbie and poke your fingers and certainly poke the back of your throat. And it's, it, it, it separates from the grain, and it's very light. And the grain is comparatively, well, heavy is not the right word. It's dense. And so comparative to its size, it has much more mass to it. And so what they would do is they typically did this on top of a hill where the wind was good. And they would build themselves a, a floor, a good, clean, flat spot out of either, either wood or stone. And they would take their grain and the oxen would roll the stones over it to, to break the chaff loose from the grain. And then they would take these winnowing forks. And when the breeze was right, they would throw the grain up in the air. And being denser, the wheat kernels would fall back down directly from whence they came but the chaff being light would be blown into a pile that was in the direction of the way that the wind was going and you did this over and over and over and at first there would just be a ton of chaff blowing off the pile and the more you did it the less there was until there wasn't any at all and you had a pile of clean wheat that you could then take and put in your barn I want you to notice the separation that occurs here and the manner in which it occurs. Because this is a big deal. This is a big deal. When the wheat separates from the chaff as the wind is blowing, a wind blowing where it may, speaking about the Spirit in John chapter 3, this is God's wind that's blowing. And when it blows, it affects wheat. It's the same wind. The wind doesn't change. It's always the same. As a matter of fact, where we're going to look at in Malachi here in a few minutes, 
the Lord says, because I don't change, you, O Israel, are saved. It's the same wind. It's blowing. But it affects the wheat different than it affects the chaff because of the nature of the wheat and the nature of the chaff. Wheat is full. It is dense. It is substantial. And when you toss it up in the air, even when the wind is blowing, it pretty much lands in the same place every time. One of the things that you will find about the saints of God is that when the wind blows, they end up landing right back where they came from. The chaff, on the other hand, is an empty husk of a reality. It is light. And it is blown by the wind wherever the wind takes it. I mean, this is what Jesus asked the people concerning John about what they came down to see. I mean, they heard a tough message. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Friends, at Bethany on Jordan, there is a revival happening and there is a separation happening. There is a separation that is happening when God's wind blows through the word of his prophet. And those that are of substance in the kingdom... Those that are wheat that would be brought into his barn, those that are dense, those kind that land in the same place no matter how many times they're tossed and no matter how hard the wind blows, they are coming to what the wind is bringing them to. They are coming to repentance and the physical sign of that in water baptism, but to those who reject the purpose of the Lord who are nothing but empty husks of men. They are blown And they're going to be blown directly into the fire. Which, speaking of John, this is why Jesus asked them in Matthew 11. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A a reed shaken by the wind? Not at all. You came to see a prophet. That no matter... How many times he's tossed and no matter how hard the wind blows. Even when it blows so hard and he's tossed so high for a moment, one might fear to think he might get blown off the floor. He always lands in the same place. The question is, is where will you land? The fact of the matter is, is Jesus speaks to this brood of vipers or John speaks to this brood of vipers and the message to them is that he who comes after me who is mightier than I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Not just with fire. And the reason he won't is because he is mighty and he is able. And there are some of you here today that are chaff that are destined according to the elective prerogative of God to become wheat. This is what is called rebirth. This is not salvation that exists because of repentance. This is salvation that exists because of the grace of God that brings about repentance and causes chaff to become wheat. We don't know that Nicodemus was there that day, but there's a decent chance that he was. There are men of this brood of vipers that will not remain vipers. They will become something else 
because they won't be baptized by fire. They'll be baptized by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The you specifically speaks to a brood of vipers, but it is a brood that contains both the elect and the indicted. All are sinners, but some are future saints. And such is always the case. It's always the case. If you look at the narrative in Luke chapter 3, verse 7, John doesn't say this specifically to a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, but instead says it to the whole crowd that's gathered. Friends, that's why when we come together, even as the church, even as the professed people of God, the gospel is still preached. Because every one of these Pharisees and every one of these Sadducees would have told you that they weren't a viper. And many of them would have actually believed it. But they were. But they wouldn't all stay that way. The baptism of fire that is coming is a baptism of judgment. And it is by a very peculiar fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. And that separation is going to come not by a difference in the way that God speaks. God doesn't change. The difference that brings about the separation is a difference in them, the difference between wheat that is dense and chaff that is light. One that is stable and one that is blown. And so, when the word of the Lord comes upon a mixed congregation, you will find that there are those who love what they hear and those that despise it. Though they hear the same message, the difference isn't in the message, it's in them. And so, while separation is difficult, what comes after is either glorious or exceedingly dreadful. And so those that are baptized into His Spirit are regenerated into wheat and they are taken into His barn, but the chaff are burned, it says, with unquenchable fire. Now there's a couple of things here that we need to understand about the nature of the judgment that Christ is talking about. And and it really does come down to, it's a beautiful piece of, it's a beautiful piece of communication. As a matter of fact, you know, one of the things that we often say is that when you have a God that not only invented like language and the tongue, vocal cords and diaphragm and the muscles and the brain that is required to speak it, but just invented the concept of communication first and foremost, then he's always really good at communicating. And he can even communicate past the limitations of the language that is being used. And that is exactly what we see here. And guys, when you stretch Greek to the limit that it doesn't communicate well and you've got an idea bigger than it can encapsulate, then you're coming with a God idea at this point. Because I, I can't think of any concept among men that the Greek language was not capable of grasping. But there are things that God has that it won't grasp. There are things that God has that it won't grasp. There are things of His glory and His mercy and His being 
And I'm reminded of what he says about himself in the opening verses of Revelation. I am the, the one that, that is and was and will forever be. And if you look at that in the Greek, it's like completely, he says, I'm the one that was and am still wasing. What a concept. Here you see something similar about the nature of his wrath. He says this, he says, the chaff I'm going to burn. I'm going to burn it. But he doesn't mean he's going to toast it or he's going to scorch it or he's going to do away with the majority of it. It literally, the Greek literally means to burn to the down. It means to consume completely, to turn to ash for the full extent of what fire can accomplish to be accomplished until there is nothing left that remains that will support fire. So this is the idea that you don't have to worry about the house burning down anymore because the house is burnt down to the point that there is nothing left that will still burn. It is nothing but ash. He says, I'm going to burn it. I'm going to burn it completely. I'm going to consume it. I'm going to bring a fire that will eat it away to nothing. But then he says this. This fire is unquenchable. Unquenchable fire is a fire that won't go out. Can't put it out. You can't douse it with water. You can't can't smother it with mud. You can't can't put flour on it like a grease fire. Can't choke it for air. It just won't go out. But you're telling me you're gonna you're gonna burn the chaff until there is nothing left. But the fire's never gonna go out. When there's when the chaff is burned, why? wouldn't the fire go out? The word for unquenchable here, you'll recognize it because we've transliterated it into the English. The word is asbestos. Asbestos. You've heard the ambulance chaser commercials on TV, right? Mesothelioma. If you've got it, call this number now. We'll get all the money we can for you and keep 90%. Asbestos. Man, this stuff is a terrific insulator. And you know, the crazy thing, it's kind of like lead paint. As long as it doesn't turn to dust and you breathe it or eat it, it's really not dangerous. But boy, you start messing with it, it is. We've known about asbestos since the 1600s. You can't burn the stuff. You can't burn the stuff, man. Dad had, when I was a kid, he had a heat treat oven in the shop that was lined with it. Man, 1,600 degree oven. Stuff looks exactly the same after it cools off as before you heated it up. You can do it to it a thousand times. You say, well, why would we call something, why why would we choose the Greek word asbestos for this substance that will not burn when the whole point of asbestos means unquenchable, which is literally what it means, without quenching. And the reason that they called asbestos that is because the way they first used it in the 1600s was for wicks in lamps. It makes a superb wick. It's a fiber that'll draw fuel just like any other, like a natural fiber would, but unlike a natural fiber, as the fuel is burning, the asbestos is not consumed. And so instead of having to put a new wick in your lamp every couple of days, if you had an asbestos wick in your lamp, it could not be quenched. Even the fire itself would not cause the wick to be consumed. And so 
What you're really talking about here is something that's fireproof even from fire. When you talk about a complete burning that cannot be quenched, you're talking about fireproof fire. Fire that won't even bring itself to an end by the consequence of its own action, which is how natural fire works. You light this building on fire and she will burn. And she's going to start off slow, and as the heat builds, the fire is going to increase in its rapidity up until the point that it hits its zenith where it has consumed as much of the fuel as it can, and then it's going to be on the downward decline until the point that it goes out. And at that point, you can turn the flamethrower on the pile of ash that's left, and it won't light again. It has died as the consequence of its own judgment. That's natural fire. This fire. This fire is a awesomely and terribly different beast altogether. This is John's John's preaching is not hellfire and brimstone preaching, but it contains hellfire and brimstone preaching. What you see here is fireproof fire. What you see here is not a partial burning, as though the chaff will be punished to a certain degree and then God will relent, as though somehow this fire is rehabilitative to bring you back to God. There are heretics that believe that, that hell, if it even exists at all, will eventually be empty because sinners will see the error of their ways and they will repent and then God will relent. That is not the case. This fire, it says, burns in totality. It burns you down. And so what we see here is not a partial burning, but what it also is not is a burning unto annihilation. Friends, Scripture speaks equally about the love of God and the fear of God. And if you do not belong to Him, then friends, you should fear Him. You should fear Him. Because he has a fire that is not natural fire. It burns in totality. And yet it never, ever, ever stops. It continues to consume. It it is not as though it burns for a season and then the burning has ceased and it's over. It's not as though it burns you up and then there is annihilation and nothing and finally the black inkiness of non-existence. Instead, whereas grace is the best of all things of life, this is the worst of all things of death. It's His judgment that is as hard as judgment can come. Jesus speaks about it in Mark chapter 9, verse 47 and 48, when He says, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. You take the worst part of total burning, you take the worst part of unquenchable fire, and you put them together, and there is the eternal reality of the second death that is separation from God. And so the choice that John is laying before this brood of vipers 
is barn or fire. Not a natural barn and not a natural fire, but a supernatural barn with all of its supernatural goodness being plunged into the Holy Spirit of God or supernatural fire with all of its supernatural terror apart from God. The weight of what John is setting before them is the weight that all men must endure before a holy God. In the Old Testament, well, let's go to the New Testament first. In the New Testament, Paul says it this way to the Corinthians when he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for supernatural grace? Who is sufficient for supernatural judgment? Not me. Not you. Not John. John said, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. But he is sufficient. And he is coming and he's going to baptize you. Friends, you will be. I don't care if you like it. It doesn't matter if you believe. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what creed you hold to. If, 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 if you're of a low enough IQ to believe that atheism is a viable, is a viable you know, philosophy. And, and please, don't, you know, please, please don't be insulted. All of, all of the good atheists that are angry and atheists that are smart atheists know that they should never say they're atheists and instead just be agnostics. It's impossible to argue from a standpoint of non-existence. You can never prove your argument. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist and agnostic. It doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist. It doesn't matter if, you're, if you follow after the tenets of Islam. It doesn't matter if you follow after some kind of you know, Canaanite paganism or, 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 or Druidism. It doesn't matter. You will be blown by the wind. You will be tossed. You're either going to come down where you and land where you began, or you're going to be blown. You will be baptized by Christ. How about that? That blows most of the Baptist fuses. I thought we had baptism to ourselves. No, every human being that has ever lived will be baptized by Christ. You're going to be baptized by Him into the Spirit, or you're going to be baptized by fire. One of the two, we're the aroma of Christ everywhere. To those that are living, the fragrance of life. To those that are dying, the fragrance of death. In the Old Testament, the Lord says it to Moses like this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. What a statement. Choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God and obeying His voice and holding fast to Him for He is your life and the length of your days. John's message is not hellfire and brimstone. John's message is a balanced scriptural gospel 
that tells you the reason that you need to be saved is because there is something that you need to be saved from. And no matter how religious the group you have together is, there is going to be somebody there in that midst that may even believe themselves not to be a snake, that may believe themselves not to be chaff, but indeed are. The wind will show you what you are. He is separating his winnowing fork in his hand. And what is coming on the other side of the baptism of which all men will endure is either supernatural glory or supernatural judgment. And the Lord says, I lay them both before you. Won't you choose life? Won't you choose life? Friends, there is glory for the people of God in the midst of baptism by spirit and by fire. It's in both. I said I thought we were done this week, Jim. We are not. It's in both, and we'll come back here next week. But whether it's this week in vacation Bible school, whether it's talking to your kids at home, whether you're looking yourself in the mirror, the message of the gospel is always the same. I've set before you life and death. You're your own death. God is your life. Choose life. Why wouldn't you? I can tell you why you wouldn't. Because of you. And I can tell you why you might. Because of God. Seek and you will find. I pray if you do not know him. Friends, I would, I would tell you. I'm done. I would tell you that simply the threat of the fire unquenching and all burning of hell is not enough to save a man. It's not Christ will not be used to punch your ticket. If you're going to come to Jesus, you're going to come to Jesus for Jesus, not to avoid something else. But as we see with these Pharisees, you don't have to show up for the right reason to walk away changed. Many have come seeking relief from the judgment of God only to find the true nature of salvation to be in the joy of Jesus Christ. So fear and run to him and rejoice in his love. I pray that you would even now.